Thank you so much. You'll have to forgive me a cough. I think you guys have been doing that for quite some time now. I just can't seem to shake it. And they keep telling me it's not COVID, which is good. But you have to just deal with me. We are going to be today in the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is a epistle of Paul. So it's going to be in those epistles. It's going to be in that section of your book. If you go about three-fourths of the way back and probably a little bit more, you'll get into those. Colossians is one of the prison epistles, which means Paul was writing it when he was in prison. And he is writing this one. The, the, the letter to the church of the Colossians is to a group of people in Colossae, which is in, I think, present-day Turkey and was part of the Roman Empire. And what's interesting about this church is he, didn't actually, he hadn't actually met this church. He had not had interactions with this church. We're going to see, we see in a lot of the other letters that these were churches that he knew, that he had helped plant, that he was very much so involved with. This is true of the church in Thessalonica. This is true of the church in Ephesus. But the church in Colossae, he didn't know them directly. And I love that about the church in Colossae. Just as a side note, a sidebar before we get in the text. Because that means that somebody who is not famous to us probably went into that city and began to share the gospel and a church was planted and now Paul is writing to that church. We often think of people like uh, Paul and Peter and, and even Timothy as these like great juggernauts of the faith and they're the type of people that plant churches. We can translate that 2,000 years into the future and we go to today and we think it's people like uh, Billy Graham and uh, Paul Chitwood, who's the head of the Southern Baptist Conve uh, International Mission Board, or J.D. Greer, who was the president last year of the Southern Baptist Convention. And we think those are the type of people that plant churches. But even in the New Testament church, even in the apostolic church, there were people like us, everyday people, who went to new places and said, these people need to hear about Jesus. And they did that. And because they did that, people heard about Jesus and believed about Jesus and churches got formed. The reality is, is we have no idea how a church came to be in Colossae. And that's wonderful for us. Because that means people like us can go to places that need to hear the gospel and share the gospel and churches will come to be. Now, we're going to be in the very first chapter of the book of Colossae, so first book of Colossians. So if you're there, we're going to stay in that first chapter, but we're going to look at the last two verses of this chapter. So we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29. And if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Paul says these words to the church in Colossae. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Please be seated. I love the beginning of the year. I actually really like New Year's and not necessarily just because of the cold 
or, or the fact that finally my kids are going to go back to school after two weeks off or anything like that. I like the new year because the new year is always a new beginning. Now, I don't know how many people here do New Year's resolutions. I think in this day and age, everybody kind of secretly has something they want to do better in the new year. We may not flat out say, these are my New Year resolutions, though if you do that and you write them down or you do it for school or whatever, great. But I think all of us, to some degree, when we get into a new year, when we hit January 1st, there are things that we want to do better in the new year. We want to do something better. We want to try to be a little bit better. We want to try to do something better, try to you know, do things again in a better way. I don't know if you're like me, but my New Year's resolutions often don't last that long. I tend to get in January and say, this year I'm going to do this. This year I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise more and lose some weight. This year I'm going to regrow my hair. This year I'm going to make my kids listen to me a little bit better. And they never work. And often what really happens is I get distracted. <clears throat> Life kind of happens, you know, I think, oh, you know, it's January 1 or January 2, and, and this is the new year, and this is the year I'm going to really buckle down and do this. And then life happens, right? I've got children. They seem to think that they should have a social life and, and end up taking up my calendar time uh, or, or family happens. I think every year since I can remember, there has been something that's happened in my family, like some sort of sickness. And the first month of January just like goes right out the window. And I end up spending two or three weeks um, home with a sick kid or a sick myself or something like that. And, and all of those, all of those plans and all of those intentions and all of those resolutions just ultimately go off track and get thrown to the curb. All of us have major life events that, that, that often completely reorganize our life and make it harder for us to do what we feel like we want to do. We find out we're having a kid. We move. We suffer some sort of major loss in our family. We pick up a new hobby that seems to take over all of our time. Our children seem to pick up a, pick up a new hobby that seems to take over all of our time. And suddenly we find ourselves off track and not doing what we wanted to be doing at the beginning of the year. Nevertheless, every new year, we have an opportunity to refocus on the things that matter. And every year, we, can we get to turn the calendar, and we begin to ask ourselves, what matters, and how do I structure my life to accomplish what matters and to, and to really invest in the things that matter. And I would like to think that even this church, as we enter into 2022, we need to ask ourselves the questions, what matters? And how do we, both as individuals in the church and as the church as a whole, how do we focus on the things that matter and start the new year off right? That is why I think this verse is so important. Because Paul, it, it, for the context of this verse, Paul is, is defending his ministry. He is explaining to the church, this is who I am and this is what I do. And when we get to these two verses, he is kind of summing up all of that and saying, listen, this is what it's all about. 
This is what my ministry is all about. And I think when we look at these two verses, we're reminded of this is what we should be all about. This should be our focus. We should ask ourselves the question, are we accomplishing these things? And if we're not, why not? And as we look at everything we do, we need to ask ourselves the question, is this accomplishing something in this passage? And if not, why not? Let's look at it again. I want to read this for you just again. You don't have to stand up. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Let's break down this passage and begin to think about what matters for the church. The first thing we see in this passage is, is it's just such a, a simple, short statement that has so much meaning. <coughs> Paul says this, we proclaim him. Now, wait a minute, just a second. Why is this him? Why isn't it we proclaim it? We would probably all say, well, what are we supposed to be proclaiming? And we'd say the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is good news, but, but doesn't that make it an it? Why doesn't he say we proclaim it? Why does it that Paul instead says we proclaim him? That's because, you know, that's because the gospel, I want you to understand this, the gospel is not just a list of theological ideas. It is not a checklist of to-dos that every person needs to complete in order to go to heaven. The gospel is, in fact, a who, and that who is Jesus Christ. This is something that is so important, and often we get lost in all of the busyness of church life. We want to talk about tithing, and tithing is important, and we should, and we should give, and we should give faithfully, and we should give regularly. But tithing is not what we proclaim. We might, want, we might want to talk about, um, about purity and, and the importance of, of, mar of, of marriage and keeping those relationships pure. And that's important, and we should talk about that, but that's not what we proclaim. We could talk about church attendance, and, and church attendance is good, and we are so glad you are here, and we are so glad that we have many watching online because of, of the pandemic. And church attendance and church participation is good, but that's not what we proclaim. We proclaim him. Paul is telling the church in Colossae that his mission is to proclaim Christ. He says something very similar to the church in Corinth when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but we preach Christ crucified. <clears throat> to Jews it is a stumbling block and to Gentiles it is foolishness. We, as the church, and as individuals, must be first and foremost all about Jesus Christ. There is a world out there that needs to hear about Jesus. And, I'm gonna, and, and what I want you to understand here is when I say that, that means that there is a world out there that, that needs to hear about Jesus, not Tunnel Hill. When we go and when we start telling people about our faith, the things that we should be talking up is really not us. Oh, you should go to our church. Our church, oh, the music in our church is so good. Oh, you should come to our church. Oh, the preacher, he, oh, he's, he's a firecracker. 
Oh, you should come to our church. We have got such a beautiful building. Oh, you, you should come to our church. You'll feel so comfortable there. I mean, these are nice things to say, but that's not our message. We shouldn't be proclaiming the, the Southern Baptist Convention or the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Oh, we got it right. We got it most right. You should be a Southern Baptist because we, oh, we're better than everybody else. In fact, we're the best kind of Southern Baptist. We're a Kentucky Baptist. And I don't mean to toot my own horn, but you ain't going to go to another state and find a better Baptist than a Kentucky Baptist right here. That's not what we proclaim. That's not what we should all be about. But rather, we should proclaim Him. When we talk to people, we should say, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you what the Bible says about Jesus. Let me introduce you to my Savior who made me brand new. This is what people need to hear. These are what, these are what going to pass someone from death to life. If you, if you talk up church and talk up church and talk up church with somebody, and one day they come to church and you're like, woohoo, I won! But they never meet Jesus. And they never give their life to Jesus and they are never transformed by the gospel message that we find in Jesus. They are still lost. And they are still going to hell. And so we must proclaim Him. And we should not be afraid to make it weird by bringing Jesus up in the conversation. When we are talking with people and they are struggling and they are suffering, when we are, when we are just with our friends and they are wanting to know what's going on in our life, tell them about Jesus. Not just church. Not just your Sunday school or your Bible study. Not your mission, not your, your mission trip or, or whatever it might be. Tell them about Jesus. We proclaim Him. As we go forward in the passage, Paul goes on to say, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Now, this is, there's a lot to unpack just in this little statement. It is really important to Paul in regards to the church because... Um, what he's saying right here because he is about to confront them regarding heresies that have begun to take root within this church. So what he's telling them is like, listen, this is my mission. We are proclaiming Christ and then we are teaching and admonishing every person so that we can present every person complete or perfect in Christ. Now the reason he is saying that to this group right now is because he knows that there is some admonishment coming that he has to deal with some things going on in their church because there are some beliefs going on in their church that don't line up with who Christ is and what the church is supposed to be. Telling them, um, what he is telling them is that part of proclaiming Christ is just making disciples by admonishing and teaching them. Now you may ask yourself, what does this word mean? We don't use the word admonish a lot in our talk today. 
You don't really say like, oh, hey, how was your day? Oh, it was kind of a rough day. I was at work, and, and I had this one coworker, and I had to admonish him uh, before the end of the day. I've never heard anybody say that. I don't think they say that in the military, do they? They don't say, oh, I had to admonish someone. They get that knife hand out, and they admonish, I had to admonish them. They don't do that. We don't say that word. But let me tell you what admonishment means. Admonishment is when you confront a person in order to change that person's attitudes or actions. This is what it means. So you are confronting a person to say, hey, a change needs to take place. What you're thinking or what you're doing needs to change. Let me tell you something. I have a teenage daughter and she just loves admonishment. It's her favorite thing in the whole world. There's nothing better for my teenage daughter than for me to walk into a room and go, can we talk? She just goes, oh, can we? I know I've made some mistakes. I'd love to talk about them. Pretty sure my preteen daughter loves them just as much. But these are necessary things within the life of the church and within the life of the Christian. Not only does Paul say that, that he is, his mission is to admonish, but also to teach. See, this is, these two things go hand in hand. Teaching is presenting the truth of the scriptures in an orderly way that a person might grow in their walk with Christ. These two things serve as a one-two punch in discipleship. They come together. Teaching has to have admonishment with it, and admonishment has to have teaching with it. You can't just run up to people and yell, stop, stop what you're doing, and then run away. Because they don't know, even if you're telling them to stop, they don't know what to do instead. If you're teaching someone saying, hey, this is what you need to do, but you never say, hey, by the way, what you're doing, that does, it's not the same thing. We need to kind of correct and we need to stop what you're doing and, and do it correctly. If we don't have both of these things together, ultimately our walk with Christ or anything in life is going to get perverted. It's going to get messed up. <laughs> and so always we have to have both admonishment and teaching together. Paul is arguing that he is teaching what is good and right and that he is trying to do away with what is corrupted and false. These are the very things that we hear from Jesus as he gave the Great Commission when he said, go there and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, though I, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Even Jesus, from the very beginning, said, I want you to make disciples, and part of the discipleship process is teaching them to be obedient. That implies both that teaching and admonishing that Paul is talking about in this passage. And so we see this is huge in the life of the Christian. Now, there's something I really want you to understand here. The life of the Christ follower is about both warning people about their errors and teaching them what to do and being willing to be taught those things and to be admonished. It comes with both. <coughs> we need to be willing to both receive warning instruction as well as give warning and instruction. Now think about that for just a moment. We have to be careful here. One, we should not be too overly eager to run in and teach and admonish people in such a way that it is soul-crushing. 
and constantly telling people that what they're doing is wrong and trying to be a perfectionist in their life so that, that they get to the point that they want nothing to do with you. Teaching and admonishing comes with love and grace and patience and forgiveness. But in the same breath, we need to be mindful that we are able to receive teaching and admonishment ourselves. It is very easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking we are perfect. Now, we wouldn't say that. I wish I had a quarter for every time in a Sunday school class I had someone say, Well, I'm not perfect. And a lot of the ways we will admit in a theological abstract concept, we'll say, well, nobody's perfect. I know I'm not perfect because nobody's perfect. But then if we said, okay, what sins in your life are you working on right now? They'd say, you know, I think I might pray too much. And, and you know, sometimes I think, I think I'm too selfless. And, uh, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, I'm just too gracious to my husband. He just kind of walks all over me, and, uh, and I'm, probably, I'm probably just, I'm just too, too gracious and forgiving. That's baloney. I know that's baloney. I wish we had, I wish, I wish teachers had a pack of baloney every time, and when people said that stuff, they just threw it at them. We don't want to actually admit what we are struggling with. We don't want to actually admit that maybe sometimes in our lives we are selfish. And that maybe sometimes in our lives we are, are, are angry for the wrong reasons. And that sometimes in our lives that we get bitter towards people. We don't want to admit that. We don't want to say those type of things. But guys, that's the reality. And we have to be willing to learn to be admonished, to be taught by people in such a way that we can say, you know what? He's talking about this, and maybe it's a one-on-one -on -one thing, and, and someone's saying, hey, I'm seeing this in your life, and I'm concerned. Maybe you're in the context of the Sunday school or the home group or the worship service, and, and, and sin is getting talked about, and you go, wait a minute. I do that, don't I? And you turn to your spouse, and you go, do I do that? And your spouse goes, Yes! And we say, this is something I need to repent of. This is something that I need to forgive. I need to, to ask for forgiveness. And this is a change that I need to make in my life. We have to fight the urge to be angry and to go grow bitter, both as we disciple others and as we are discipled. Hebrews 12, 15 says this. I love this word. He says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many are defiled. We have to be mindful of these things. Part of the Christian life, part of being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, is allowing God through his word and the power of the spirit to remove the things in our life that are fleshly and to fill it up with things that are spiritual. And yeah, that comes through ordinary means, like Bible study and discipleship and accountability. But our text doesn't stop here. You may ask yourself, well, how, how do I fight this urge to grow bitter? 
how do I fight this, this desire? Because I know, I'm going to just, I can speak to myself right now. I know that I don't take rebuke well because I'm a human being. And it's hard for me to have someone come up to me and say, hey, you're not being very nice. Hey, I heard you say this, or I know you've been thinking this, or this has been your attitude the whole day, and that's not godly, and that's not right, and I want to talk to you about it. We have those, when we have those conversations, you know, how do we fight that? And I think the key is, is found at the very end of verse 28, when he reminds them of what the ultimate goal of discipleship is. He says this, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is our goal. This is our end game. This is what the church exists to accomplish. We both as individuals and as the church should have a desire to be as much like Christ as we can be. Notice the who of this passage. Again, as we just look at it again, he says that we are admonishing every man, that we are teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. I really, really, really want you to take hold of this idea today. If we claim to be a Christ follower, then we have made a commitment to grow in our faith and to walk with Christ and to help others grow as well. There can never be a time where we have done enough, where we have learned enough, where we have grown enough, or we have served enough in order to coast or retire from following Jesus. Never. It doesn't matter if you're eight years old or 89 years old. We still have a commitment and an obligation to pursue Christ and to encourage others to pursue Christ as well. We are not done. And we will not be done until we have been made perfect in Christ, which will not happen until either he returns or we go to be with him. Ephesians 4.13 says something very similar to this. When he says our goal, he's talking about the purpose of the church, and he says this, that our goal is that we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to become a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, this passage along with Ephesians 4 says that we are not done until every person who will ever receive Christ is like Christ. Not has received Christ, not just conversion, but they are like Christ. That puts quite the task in front of us, doesn't it? See, it's not just that we need to go tell everybody about Jesus, but we need to go tell everybody about Jesus so that those who hear about Jesus and believe in Jesus can be discipled so that they will act like Jesus and be like Jesus so that they can tell other people about Jesus, so that they can learn about Jesus and put their faith in Jesus, so that they can be discipled and become like Jesus. <laughs> That's why we're here. It is a huge task, but it is a wonderful task. It is why we exist. It is what we have been created for. It was Christ's plan. It was God's plan A, and there is no plan B. We are not done until we can stand before God and present everybody 
mature in Christ. Which means we're not done. And we're not going to be done. And I know that that is something that can sound horribly overwhelming. Have you ever had a job where no matter how much work you did, that job was never done? Several years ago, we took a team to Oneida Baptist Institute in Oneida, Kentucky. And one of the jobs when we go to Oneida, and if you've been one of our Oneida people, you, you probably know this, um, is sorting clothes in, they have a thrift store. And that thrift store just does amazing things for the Oneida community and all the people in that county. It's a wonderful thing. But they get donations of clothes and volunteers like us go through that clothes and sort it by whether it's for men or, or women and sizes and all those things and, and get those out on the shelves so that they can sell them but also give them away to the community. Well, that task never ends. And just when you think you've got it under control and you're like, oh, we're, how many bags of clothes do we have left? Oh, we're down to one bag. Somebody in the far off distance goes, <laughs> and a forklift comes driving in from their, their storage area and drops an entire pallet with more clothes in it for you to keep going at. And one time we took one of our church members there and, and they were working and they think, I think by this point in their life, they were retired. They were very used to when they started a job, they finished a job. And they could say, look, I finished a job. And they were happy. They were there two days and there was more clothes when they finished after two days than when they had started. And you could tell it was really starting to wear on them. Now, they had worked so hard. And they had done so many, so, done so much clothes, and they had put out so much stuff on the shelves that there was like not even room on the racks anymore because they had been so diligent. They were a wonderful servant of God. But because it just kept coming in, even though they had done so much good, they were left feeling defeated and exhausted. And guys, if we are really pursuing the Great Commission, there are going to be times where we feel that way as well. The more we try to share Christ with people, the more we begin to see the lostness that is all around us. There will be times where you will struggle and labor along a person or a group of people for years, hoping to share Christ with them, hoping to see a, a, a church get, get formed or just a person coming to know Christ, only to see one small thing happen and the whole ministry or the whole witness or the whole effort fall apart. There are seasons in everyone's life, even as they are desperately and faithfully trying to pursue the great, great Commission, where they feel horribly frustrated and unfruitful. And so the question then becomes, how do we stay on course and how do we keep our focus laser sharp and our desire high? And again, Paul gives us this answer in verse 29. Paul says that he labors and he strives according to to his power, which mightily works it with in him. Well, here we have that same him again. First, we proclaim him, and now that we, we labor and strive according to his power. And praise the Lord, the subject of those two pronouns is the same. Paul is not saying, I labor and strive according to my power, and I'm going to do this because I'm a man, and that's what men do. That would be my mindset. 
But he says, I labor and I strive according to his power. Paul recognizes that everything he does is through the power and strength that he has received from Christ because he knows that the Spirit dwells inside of him. Indeed, there is no question that that Paul, in referring to all that he has done and all that he has accomplished, he recognizes that it is the power of God working in him. And he knows that because Jesus told his disciples that. As we go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read these words, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. There is absolutely no way that the church would have ever been able to take Christ and the gospel message to the remotest parts of the world apart from the power of God through His Spirit. And that same Spirit is working in the life of every believer. He is instructing them, He is empowering them, He is emboldening them to share their faith and to grow in their faith to be more like Jesus. This is the best news of all of this. We can ask ourselves, how, what is the church supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to be doing it? What, what is our mission and our purpose? And we can say it's to proclaim Christ. <clears throat> and to all those who receive Christ, to teach them and to admonish them so that they might become mature in Christ. And the best part of that news is, is we don't have to do it with our own strength and our own skills, and our own energy, and our own abilities, but that we have tapped in to a limitless power. That the Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ, that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, and the Holy Spirit will enable you to do those things. He will make you aware. He will help you to see what He sees and to be obedient to Him. It reminds us that even though this task will probably not be finished in any of our lifetimes, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do much. So what about you? Will you labor and strive like Paul does in this passage? Will you come alongside this church for the sake of proclaiming Christ and teaching and discipling all those who come to know Christ? Will you surrender your life in order to let the Spirit work in you? Will you set out to make every person, including yourself, complete in Christ? In 2022, let us labor and strive together to see our world become more like Christ. And let that start with each and every one of us. If you are with us today and you have yet to surrender your life to Jesus at all, if you are going through life even now and and you're just trying to create your own goals and your own desires, if you're just kind of doing your own thing and hoping that that's going to be good enough, I want to challenge you today. The good news of the gospel is not about you. The good news of the gospel is not that you can try harder or you can do more or maybe you can do a little bit better. 
The good news of the gospel is that Christ did it for you. And remember, we proclaim him. That hymn is set up very well in John 3.16 where it says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, and that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The good news of the gospel is that Christ came. He came and he lived a life we couldn't live, and he died on the cross in our place, and he rose from the grave three days later. And if we will surrender our lives to him, if we will place our hope and trust in him, then we will be saved. And when we give our life to Jesus, we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are given meaning and purpose and hope and a future. And that thing is being offered to you today. If you are with us today and you've already made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, I want to challenge you today. Let's labor and strive together. Let's not delegate it to Sunday school teachers and to church staff. Let's not make the Great Commission and what Paul is writing about here something for other people to do. Let's not wait for the pandemic to be over or wait for our calendar to clear up. But today, now, let's get to work. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, we praise you so much. God, we thank you for the good news that we hear in this passage. God, we thank you for the reminder that we get from Paul's ministry. God, we recognize that you have called us to a glorious purpose and a great adventure. God, that you have given us a task and you have even told us what the end is supposed to look like. Not just that people that I get saved, not just that someone else gets saved, but that all of us might pre be presented complete in Christ. God, I pray that you would write that on the heart of this church. And that all we are and that all we do has that end in mind. And God, that we would see people come to know Christ and that their desire to walk in Christ would grow every day of their life. Lord, I pray that you would have that start with us right now. And God, that not a single one of us would leave here the same. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.